Reflections on Herman Melville's Billy Budd by Gil Bailey Produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 3 Well, that's just, so so that's the New Testament Girard, and we have to go to Melville. Melville, uh, really using the same basic understandings, but he provides us, because he's he's a poet and a storyteller, he provides us with some pictures and some narratives, some stories about this. He provides us with uh, the the character of the of the betrayer, accuser, and the scandalon, namely Claggart. As I said, Claggart can play these roles uh, interchangeably. It's like a it's like a full full blown play with a limited cast. And Claggart, until he can get somebody else to play these roles, is perfectly able to play, play them himself. So he, he can play the roles of betrayer, accuser, and scandalon. Or, or, uh, or, or what do we want to say? Uh, Diabolos, Satan, and scandalon. And Melville gives us then the nobler in some way uh, soul of the chief priest. And that's Captain Veer. Now he's a nobler soul, but he's one spiritually in hoc to the mythos that is essentially sacrificial. And when the mythos requires a sacrifice, he is fully capable of presiding over it and, and, and providing it with its ultimate rationalization. And then, most interestingly, I think, Melville gives us a picture of the social conditions which are most hospitable to the sacrificial rites orchestrated by the scandalon and presided over by the chief priest. The social conditions that invite the sacrificial uh, cult to re-enter a respectable, uh, apparently respectable cultural order and uh, commandeer it for sacrificial purposes. Now, last week we did a, talked a good deal about... Uh, the role of the French Revolution in in creating the sort of atmospheric anxiety that the British and British Navy were operating under. But today I'd like to look for a moment at what's happening just on the decks of the Bolipotent, the HMS Bolipotent. That's another social environment. It's a it's a little piece of England afloat in the Mediterranean. Uh, but uh, Melville did, did this in Moby Dick, too, you see. It's a perfect microcosm of the world. And you send it out uh, more or less the way Joseph Conrad sends, uh, you know, goes into the heart of dark. You send it out there, and uh, or perhaps even better, the Lord of the Flies. You, know. uh, you send it out there away from the civilized order. And uh, watch what happens under certain circumstances. And it will tell you something about the same thing that happens in the larger cultural environment. But when it happens in the larger cultural environment, you don't notice it because you're in it. And this is a story that you can see from outside. Here's what it's like on board the HMS Bolipotent. This provides the, the overview of what goes on there. It's a mimetic pressure cooker. He says, every sailor is accustomed to obey orders without debating them. His life afloat is externally ruled for him. 
He is not brought into that promiscuous commerce with mankind where unobstructed free agency on equal terms, equal superficially at least, soon teaches one that unless upon occasion he exercise a distrust keen in proportion to the fairness of the appearance, some foul turn may be served him. So notice, this is a place where everybody is habituated to elaborate rules and structures and customs and usages, elaborate definition of what you can and cannot do depending on who you are and what your rank is and where you are on board the ship, intricately inlaid with that kind of structure. Because the need is to avoid what he calls that promiscuous commerce with mankind where unobstructed free agency on equal terms soon teaches one that unless upon occasion he exercise a distrust keen in proportion to the fairness of the appearance, some foul turn may be served him. Without those structures, you have a situation in which suspicion, innuendo, rumor, uh, looking out of the corner of your eye, breeds something that you don't want to have happen in the confines of, an, of, a, of a ship. So these structures, these rules are in order to prevent that. Now, what he's talking, what he's talking about there is the same thing as Gerard's talking about when he talks about mimetic desire and mimetic rivalry. And what he says at the beginning is, in on board ship, people live under exacting rules and regulations as a way of dampening the, the possible consequences of that kind of suspicion and uh, atmosphere of distrust. There's a term we use, we use it for the uh, British hierarchy, peers. We use the term peers, and it's used colloquially. Somebody's a peer who's sort of one's own, in one's own uh, strata. And uh, it's, it's a wonderful term, if you think about it. You see, the peers are those uh, who can peer at one another, you see? They, and they tend to... I, not too long ago, I was in a, a, a group of uh, intellectuals, and, I, and they were peers, and I, I noticed that there is that... that, that word, the word has... Uh, it, 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 ha, it says something. Uh, there's a tendency in one's group of peers to behave a certain way because there is peering going on. Now... The reason I would submit that we have hierarchies and stratas and structures is for the same reason that the fire marshal requires that there be a metal door to the stairway on all the floors of all the hotels. And that is because if a fire breaks out in one floor, it will not spread to another. So you have structures... Within that structure, one is a peer. One can't. There is an inevitable uh, mimetic desire, mimetic rivalry component to the social environment in that compartment, and that, those, that's a dangerous uh, component, you see. But if it gets out of hand, it's contained. If on board a ship, uh, two guys accidentally. Mm -hmm jostle each other, ships, ships uh, you know, 
roll around on the sea, two guys accidentally jostle each other, there's a fairly good chance that one of them will be grade B and one of them will be grade C and both will know exactly how to handle it. You see what I mean? The, these structures compartmentalize the social order and keep mimetic, mimetic desire and mimetic rivalry from spreading all over the place. When it spreads all over the place, that's what Girard calls the crisis of distinctions. Well, given that as a background, here's what Melville said. Now, there can exist no irritating juxtaposition of dissimilar personalities comparable to that which is possible aboard a great warship fully manned and at sea. There, every day among all ranks, almost every man comes into more or less of contact with almost every other man. Wholly there to avoid even the sight of an aggravating object, one must needs give it Jonas toss or jump overboard himself. Exactly why those structures have to be there. Because it's close quarters. And the energies there could get out of hand very easily. And the next sentence is this. Imagine how all this might eventually operate on some peculiar human creatures, the direct reverse of a saint. That's Claggart. It is a perfect environment for Claggart. He says of the Claggarts of, of the world, what can more partake of the mysterious than an antipathy spontaneous and profound such as is evoked in certain exceptional mortals by the mere aspect of some other mortal, however harmless he may be, if not called forth by this very harmlessness itself. He says, how could you explain the reaction of hostile reaction to an absolutely innocent and harmless one except by saying it has something to do with the innocence and the harmlessness. That the innocence and the harmlessness trigger the reaction. In a sense, good is the scandalon of the bad. There is an inevitable scandalization that occurs. In the Gospel of John, Judas uh, betrays Jesus and it says that just before the betrayal, Judas takes the bread, which for everybody else is going to be the bread of life. And Judas takes it, and as soon as he puts it in his mouth, it says, Satan entered him. There's another instance in which the choice is between the gospel and the apocalypse. Uh, Satan enters him. Satan is the accuser. The word means the accuser. And biblical research... Uh, hasn't expended their efforts for naught. We know now, many, many surmise now, that Judas was a zealot. That is to say, one who was preoccupied with the historical contest between Israel and its Roman occupier. And one who had, as others apparently had for uh, some time, hopes that Jesus would uh, galvanize a resistance force and throw the Romans out. And there is the inference that uh, Judas, in his betrayal of Jesus, was not 
uh, abandoning his faith in Jesus. He was simply trying to force Jesus into playing his hand in the presence of a Roman arrest. And so um, Satan, that is to say, the representative of that whole mimetic construct, entered him and he tried to become the scandalon of Christ. In other words, there was the one who stood outside of that whole mimetic structure and all Judas could do was to try to rope him into that structure, to try to bring him into that structure. In the case of Judas, it seems there's no particular hostility to Jesus. As a matter of fact, there's, there's admiration, perhaps even faith. But the key feature here is the attempt to get that person back into this world of reciprocal hostility, to take sides in the dialectic which the person in question has defined as the nature of the world. So here is, here is Claggart, who is the personification of that kind of conflictual humanity, and comes along innocent, naive, simple-minded, honest, earnest, straightforward, uncomplicated, Billy Bud, Baby Bud. The Bud is still closed, see? Innocence. And immediately Claggart reacts. He must get him. He must trip him up and get rid of that stupid innocence of his and get him to get into it like everybody else. The problem is he couldn't get Billy to bite any of the bait. Billy was so innocent that Claggart would say something that was a little bit, a little bit subtle, and Billy would say, "Well, by golly, he likes me." <laughs> and uh, so, finally, this happened: uh, the ship's tossing on the seas, and um, Billy spills a soup on the floor of the deck. And uh, here's how it goes. Stepping over it, Claggart was proceeding on his way without comment, since the matter was nothing to take notice of under the circumstances, when he happened to observe who it was that had done the spilling. His countenance changed. He tapped Billy with his rattan and says, Handsomely done, my lad, and handsome is as handsome did it, too. And with that, he passed on. And Billy said, See, he's not down on me, he likes me. The commentary, the narrator's commentary, is this. When he said, when Claggart said, handsome is as handsome does, he there let slip what it was that had first moved him against Billy, namely, Billy's significant personal beauty. Claggart's spite of Billy sometimes took the form of, quote, cynic disdain, the stain of innocence, to be nothing more than innocent. Yet, in an aesthetic way, he saw the charm of it, the courageous, free and easy temper of it, and fain would have shared it, but he despaired of it. Now, I think you could apply those words without amendment to Judas. 
in the story of Jesus. Claggart is the place at which mimetic desire and mimetic rivalry are, are entangled with each other. He longs for something and despises it because he longs for something that is not part of his little petty world and he despises it because it's not part of the only world he knows. And, it, and its very existence calls into question the world that he has spent his life habituating to. So we have this as a commentary from a hundred years ago, or an anticipation, if you will, from a hundred years ago, of uh, Girard's notion of mimetic desire and mimetic rivalry. The text says, Now envy and antipathy, passions irreconcilable in reason, nevertheless in fact may spring conjoined like Chang and Ng in one birth. Chang and Ng are the two Siamese twins that toured the United States in the early part of the 19th century. So he says, Envy and antipathy. One thinks of them as being opposites. But he says, all you have to do is have one second thought, you realize instantly they're not opposites at all. They're Siamese twins. One thinks that desire and rivalry are opposites. And Gerard says, look again. They're, they're Siamese twins. Now, envy and antipathy, passions irreconcilable in reason, nevertheless, in fact, may spring conjoined like Chang and Ng in one birth. Mimetic desire, mimetic rivalry, envy and antipathy. Is envy then such a monster? Well, though many an arraigned mortal has in hopes of mitigated penalty pleaded guilty to horrible actions, did ever anybody seriously confess to envy? Something there is in it universally felt to be more shameful than even felonious crime. And not only does everyone disown it, but the better sort are inclined to incredulity when it is in earnest imputed to an intelligent man. But since its lodgment is in the heart and not the brain, no degree of intellect supplies a guarantee against it. But Claggart's was no vulgar form of the passion. Claggart's envy struck deeper. If askance he eyed the good looks, cheery health, and frank enjoyment of young life in Billy Budd, it was because these went along with a nature that, as Claggart magnetically felt, had in its simplicity never willed malice or experienced the reactionary bite of that serpent. And so he wants to set out to make him do that, to get him in to the club. One person accepted, and that's Captain Veer, the master-at-arms, Claggart, was perhaps the only man in the ship intellectually capable of adequately appreciating the moral phenomenon presented in Billy Budd. A moral phenomenon is presented in Billy Budd, and Claggart recognized it, and nobody else recognized it except, per, except perhaps Captain Veer. Billy Budd was a living hint that the whole motivational system that was operating in the lives of those on board that ship was unworthy of human life. Billy didn't recognize it. You see, 
And when he says one person accepted, it's Veer he's talking about, not Billy. Billy didn't understand that he was a, a moral phenomenon. He wasn't capable of it. But Claggard understood it, and Captain Veer came to understand it. And uh, in the presence of that, that's the way you see Jesus went around becoming a crisis for everybody, saying it's possible not to live in that vortex. It's possible to be free of that. And and somebody standing outside of the thing that I've spent all my life working on, looking over and saying, there's more to life than that, just gets me, see? And I want to think, well, I want to get them in. They don't, you see, they don't realize that this is a tough world or whatever it is. But I want to go back to envy because envy is a funny thing. You know, the medievals classified the deadly sins. And uh, they go from pride, which is the deadliest, to lust, which is deadly but the least deadly. And the second deadliest sin is envy. But unlike all the rest of them, it has absolutely no selling points. All the rest of the deadly sins provide at least a momentary gratification. Envy provides nothing. It festers. It, it's, a, it's a terrible thing. There's no payoff to it. But it's the second deadliest sin. The text goes on. Passion and passion in its profoundest is not a thing demanding a palatial stage whereon to play its part. And the circumstances that provoke it, however trivial or mean, are not a measure of its power. In the present instance, the stage was a scrubbed gun deck and one of the external provocations, a man of war's man's spilled soup. That's all it takes. A little trigger, a little tiny triggering device. Insignificant. Now, when the master at arms noticed whence came that greasy fluid streaming before his feet, he must have taken it, to some extent willfully perhaps, not for the mere accident it assuredly was, but for the sly escape of a spontaneous feeling on Billy's part, more or less answering to the antipathy on his own. Even so was it that into the gall of Claggart's envy he infused the vitriol of his contempt. Now, when you mix those two together like the alchemist in the laboratory, you see, it's like mixing mimetic desire and mimetic rivalry. Envy and contempt. And what bubbles up out of that is powerful poison. Claggart had tried to scandalize Billy. I'm using the New Testament term. Had tried to provoke him, trip him up. Um, but it had never worked. Um, his provocations, quote, had not developed any quality in him that enmity might make official use of or even pervert into plausible self-justification so that the occurrence at the mess, pretty much petty as it were, was a welcome one. I love that those phrases. He had not developed any quality in him that enmity could make official use of or even pervert into plausible self-justification. That's the spring-loaded to find that thing in Billy that will, that will justify that, that uh, unjustifiable antipathy towards Billy and his innocence. Such characters as Claggart, quote, can really form no concept of an unreciprocated malice. Notice that. 
no concept of an unreciprocated malice. Malice comes out of the mimetic environment. And so it is in unimaginable that there would be a, a, a malice that is not part of that reciprocal operation. So, Claggart himself automatically assumes that his malice has, in the one towards whom it's directed, a, a corresponding uh, malice towards himself. One of Claggart's corporals, who has the nickname, appropriate nickname, Squeak, knowing what Claggart wanted to hear, told him all kinds of total fabrications about what Billy was doing and saying, which fed Claggart's uh, appetite. Well, the, the term is his... Uh, the text refers to the greediness of hate for pablum. So Squeak is the one who provides, uh, feeds the greediness of hate for pablum, even though it's total fabrications. But Claggart never questioned the veracity of these reports he was receiving from Squeak, even though he knew something about the questionableness of the source. And so the commentary is, an uncommon prudence is habitual with the subtler depravity, for it has everything to hide. See, it's really involved in mystifications and cover-up. And in case of an injury but suspected, its secretiveness voluntarily cuts it off from enlightenment or dissolution. And not unreluctantly, action is taken upon surmises upon certainty. And the retaliation is apt to be in monstrous disproportion to the supposed offense. For when in anybody was revenge in its exactions aught else but an inordinate usurer? Well, the important part of that is there is a semi-conscious avoidance of the truth of the situation. There's much more interest in the rumors of animosity than in the actual truth of the situation because you can turn those into self-justification. You can, enmity can make official use of those and the truth might change that situation. The attempt to scandalize Billy in earnest begins after the spilled soup episode and it begins one night when he is in his hammock and a, a tempter comes along, a scandalon, one of the underlings that, uh, that Claggart has uh, inspired, no doubt. And because uh, Melville is fond of the serpentine uh, image, this uh, character begins by saying, Hist, Billy. Uh, and says that over and over again to remind us of what we're involved with here. He says, you were impressed, weren't you, that it was drafted, taken against your will into the military service. You were impressed, weren't you? Well, so was I. And he paused as to mark the effect. But Billy, not knowing exactly what to make of this, said nothing. <laughs> Billy is a very innocent guy. He didn't know what he's talking about. You were impressed, weren't you? Well, so was I. Dot, dot, dot. Anything, anything going to come of that? Nothing comes of it. So the other said, we are not the only impressed ones, Billy. There's a gang of us. Couldn't you help us in a pinch? See? And then he holds up some coins, and Billy gets the idea. He gets a vague idea. And he runs him off, but in doing so, his speech impediment returns. 
He's so he gets so agitated that he he, he says that, that that damn you get out of here. See, he gets that stutter again, and the guy leaves. So we get association between the scandalous, the attempt at scandalizing, the attempt at uh, gathering Billy into this into this uh, mentality, associated with Billy stuttering. And then we pause and get what really is an important reference. And that is that the Bolipotent is now on an expedition on its own, away from the, the fleet. And the text says, it was on an expedition of this sort, a scouting expedition, a somewhat distant one, when the Bolipotent was almost at her furthest removed from the fleet. Now, this is a very important reference. The fleet represents, you see, there's, there's the Bolipotent and the fleet and the British Empire. In, in lines of cultural connection. And now the Bolivitant at, is at its furthest removed from the fleet, and the fleet, of course, is removed from uh, the British mainland. So you get an, an attenuated cultural connection here. It's out on its own. It's like the Lord of the Flies or the Heart of Darkness out there someplace where it will have to draw on its own cultural resources to respond to anything that needs the resources that the culture has. And when it does that, it will likely draw on ones that are more primitive and more revealing for what they really are than the, than the more camouflaged ones that would be happening uh, back in London society. I wanted to speak about this for a minute because perhaps the image to use here is, is gravitational field. So you see the Bolivitant as being on the margins of the gravitational field the center of which is the king and the British society. But the measure of the gravitational field uh, involves two coordinates, so to speak. One is the distance of the object from the center. And the other is the, the gravitational force emitted at the center. And one can be at the, quote, the furthest removed from the source of cultural authority without being geographically far removed. For instance, in Washington, D.C., one can walk three blocks from the White House or the Capitol and be in a place which is at the furthest removed from the center of gravity of the cultural convening force, you see. One can be on one's own, where the kind of thing that happened in the Lord of the Flies can happen. So it's an instance of how we are in our society experiencing something like what the Bolivitant was experiencing by being at the furthest removed. So it's it's a it's an eventuality that says something about us in our time. It was an expedition of the latter sort, a somewhat distant one, when the Bolivitant was almost at her furthest removed from the fleet that an enemy frigate was sighted. So you have one more thing to add to the... What we're, what's being described here is the, is, are the social ingredients... Or, let's see. What's being described is the conditions most hospitable to a reemergence of the sacrificial cult. At the furthest removed from the source of cultural authority and the presence of an enemy. In the presence of an enemy, one cannot tolerate uh, 
any kind of dissent. Unanimity is demanded in the face of the enemy. So here, most again, the Bible is the best source for understanding this. This is from uh, chapter 32 of the book of Exodus. Moses has gone up the mountain to get the tablets. He comes back down the mountain. While he's gone, uh, the Israelites have uh, implored Aaron to help them build the golden calf. And they have worshipped the golden calf and, af calf, and afterwards they got up and, quote, amused themselves. And uh, Moses comes down uh, and sees this going on. When Moses saw the people so out of hand, for Aaron had allowed them to lapse into idolatry with enemies all around them. Now, there are two possible references to this, depending on how you want to approach the text. One is, they didn't have to resort to pagan idolatry. In other words, if they were trying to reconvene a, a, a sense of cultural integrity, they didn't have to resort to pagan idolatry. They had historical enemies. They could have done it with historical enemies. They didn't have to build a golden calf. If you, you see what I'm saying? Historical enemies provide us with the incentive to reconvene unanimity. So one way of approaching this text is Moses is saying, hey, look, you had an absolutely camouflageable historical opportunity to reconvene. You didn't have to go and make a pagan idol. That's not particularly germane to the, our approach here today. Aaron had allowed them to lapse into idolatry with enemies all around them. Moses stood at the gate of the camp and shouted, Who is for Yahweh to me? And all the sons of Levi rallied to him. And he said to them, This is the message of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Gird on your sword, every man of you, and quarter the camp from gate to gate, killing one his brother, another his friend, another his neighbor. The sons of Levi carried out the command of Moses. And of the people, about 3,000 perished that day. Today, Moses said, you have won yourselves investiture as priests of Yahweh at the cost one of his son, another of his brother. And so he grants you a blessing today. It's a magnificent text. And it's the response of the disintegration of structure that is reconvened in a catastrophic bloodletting episode after which the priesthood is officially invested with priestly authority. Remember, the, the priesthood, the purpose of the priesthood was to offer blood sacrifices on the altar. And this is the point at which they get their investiture. Couldn't be clearer. Well, the reason I read it is because the environment in which that crisis was precipitated was one that brought into being by the presence of enemies. Okay, so back to the blueprint. Furthest removed, and enemies are there. They give chase. Nothing comes of this encounter with the enemy force, but it's just enough to add that special feature to the environment. Claggart then goes to Captain Veer. He says to Veer, that during the chase and preparation for the possible encounter, he had seen enough to convince him that at least one sailor aboard was a dangerous character in a ship mustering some who not only had taken a guilty part in the late serious troubles, but others also who, like the man in question, had entered His Majesty's service under another form than enlistment. At this point, Captain Veer, with some impatience, interrupted him. Be direct, man. Say, impressed men. 
innuendo, euphemism. It's like Iago. It's so like Iago. He goes on. He deeply felt, he added, the serious responsibility assumed in making a report involving such possible consequences to the individual mainly concerned, besides tending to augment those natural anxieties which every naval commander must feel in view of the extraordinary outbreaks so recent of those which, he sorrowfully said it, it need not to name. So, the innuendos. And Claggart concluded with this. God forbid, Your Honor, that the belipotence should be the experience of the... Never mind that, interrupted Captain Veer. The spithead, or the nor mutiny. The great mutiny. So he insinuates that. That could happen, you see. So that this is the environment in which the sacrificial mechanism is triggered. So the captain says, who are you talking about? One William Budd. A hearing is convened in the captain's quarters. Veer, Claggart, and Billy Budd. On his way to the captain's quarters, quote, the only thing that took shape in the young sailor's mind was this. Yes, the captain, I have always thought, looks kindly upon me. Wonder if he's going to make me his coxswain. I should like that. Now, we have to appreciate, I think the way to appreciate this and I think Melville is consciously doing it. Remember, Billy is a foundling. When he first came on board the Bolipotan, he was asked, who was your father? And he said, God knows. And uh, he likes Captain Veer, and he senses that Captain Veer likes him. And he thinks that maybe he's, Captain Veer is going to ask him to be his coxswain. And I suggest that what's involved here is the emotional equivalent of an adoption. Billy is going into that cabin thinking he is about finally to be adopted. Now that's his expectation. Remember we talked about the pharmacos, the Greek term, the pharmacos, from which we get pharmacy. The pharmacos was the, uh, was the, the, the one chosen to be the scapegoat. It's the Greek version of the scapegoat. The one chosen to be the scapegoat. Paraded around town and then run out of town or executed. And one who, uh, uh, who, who absorbs and eliminates the pollution or the disease in the society. The pharmacos is always the one who is the, diseased one, the crazy one, the insane one. So listen to this. With the measured step and calm collected air of an asylum physician approaching in the public hall some patient beginning to show indications of a coming paroxysm, Claggart deliberately advanced within short range of Billy. Like a psychiatrist analyzing the problem and mesmerically looking him in the eye, briefly recapitulated the accusation. And the eye contact here is absolutely essential. Billy is shocked. He stood like one impaled and gagged. Meanwhile, the accuser's eyes, removing not as yet from the blue and dilated one, underwent a phenomenal change their wanted rich violet color blurring into muddy purple, those lights of human intelligence losing human expression, 
were jealously protruding like the alien eyes of some uncatalogued creatures of the deep. The first met, so this is really the the diabolos or the scandalon, the one that's evil coming through those eyes. Now watch this. The first mesmeristic glance was one of serpent fascination. The last was as the paralyzing lurch of the torpedo fish. So it's mesmerizing and then paralyzing. But here's the thing I think to notice. If Claggart is making an accusation about Billy's uh, patriotism, the accusation ought to be focused on Veer. His attention ought to be focused on Veer. He's trying to convince Veer, right? He should be making his case to Veer. Claggart's fascination. You see, the scandalon is the is the uh, is the obsessional obstacle, and Billy has become the scandalon for uh, Claggart. And Claggart is now trying to. The question is: Is Billy going to get Claggart to come into his cosmos, or is Claggart going to get Billy to come into his? He's preoccupied with Billy, and he's circling him like this, as though Veer's not even in the room. And that's because he's trying to scandalize Billy, trying to get Billy to bite the bait, trying to get Billy to react to him. He so far has not been successful in that. Nothing has caused Billy to react in kind to to Claggart's maliciousness. In the Gospel of Matthew, it says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to be scandalized, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened round his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for scandal. For it is necessary that scandal comes, but woe to the man by whom the scandal comes. By the way, the word for infant, the word infant comes from the word which means incapable of speech. And this episode uh, causes that to be Billy's case. Speak, man, said Captain Veer to the transfixed one, struck by his aspect even more than by Claggart's. Speak, defend yourself. Which appeal caused a strange, dumb gesturing and gurgling in Billy. Amazement at such an accusation so suddenly sprung on inexperienced knowledge. This, and it may be, horror at the accuser's eyes, serving to bring out his lurking defect, and in this instance for a time intensifying it into a convulsed tongue-tie, while the intent head and entire form straining forward in an agony of intellectual eagerness to obey the injunction to speak and defend himself, gave an expression to the face like that of a condemned vestal priestess in the moment of being buried alive and in the first struggle against suffocation. An explicit reference here to the sacrifice of the Vestal Virgin, inability to speak. Though at the time Captain Veer was quite ignorant of Billy's liability to vocal impediment, he now immediately divined it, since vividly Billy's aspect recalled to him that of a bright young schoolmate of his, whom he had once seen struck by such, by much the same startling impotence, in the act of eagerly rising in the class to be foremost in response 
to a testing question put to it by the master. I suggest there's, there's a metaphor there. Billy is being tested. He's being tested by the master. But he is not being tested in the way it appears that he's being tested. And the test is whether or not he can resist the scandalization. That's the test. In the Gospel of Luke, we have this passage. Jesus said, Men will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and to imprisonment and bring you before kings and governors because of my name. And that will be your opportunity to bear witness. Keep this carefully in mind. You are not to prepare your defense because I myself shall give you an eloquence and a wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to resist or contradict. I suggest that he's not talking about providing the person with something wise to say. Sometimes There are New Testament references to that having to do with the Holy Spirit and so on. But I suggest Jesus is saying, I am providing in, in, in the Passion event all the justification you're going to need. So don't prepare your defense because you'll just screw it up. You will, going on with the quote, you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relations and friends. Some of you will be put to death. You will be hated by all men on account of my name, but not a hair of your head will be lost. Your patience will win you your lives. The Greek word is hypomony. And it means patience or endurance, but it, the way to think of it, I, the, it's the alternative to fight or flight. And uh, it's that that will win. All, the alternative, but it's neither fi fighting nor fleeing but patiently enduring. Now, two things we have to mention about this text. Jesus, we have to understand his audience. He's speaking to people who are going to try to be the harbingers of the kingdom. He's not talking... To, he's, he's talking to people who have taken that as their task. And he's speaking to them about a particular moment. The moment when the, the accusing crowd gathers around them. So it's a specific reference. Simon Weil says this in another context. The attitude that brings about salvation is not like any form of activity. The Greek word which expresses it is hypomene or patientia in Latin, which is a rather inadequate translation of it. It is the waiting or attentive and faithful immobility that lasts indefinitely and cannot be shaken. Now, as long as we think of the world as being divided between the passive and the active, to be inactive seems to be, seems to be a passive and impotence 
thing to do. But here, in this critical situation, all activity is reactive. And the alternative to it is not passivity, but what, what we might label passion. Not in the colloquial sense, but in the religious sense. In the religious sense, passion is the effort it takes to convert cr the crude energy of reciprocal reactions into a living witness to life and faith that can be as a rope to those drowning in the mimetic vortex. Life prevails against death, but a life that has succumbed to fear, lust, hate, and recrimination is so entangled in, in that over which death does rule that when the end eventually comes, hardly anyone looking on will notice that death's victory is incomplete. And it may dawn on the person himself only after who knows what sort of timeless purgatory. So the text goes on. Going closer up to the young sailor and laying a soothing hand on his shoulder, Captain Veer said, There is no hurry, my boy. Take your time. Take your time. Contrary to the effect intended, these words so fatherly in tone, you see that? Doubtless touching Billy's heart to the quick, prompted yet more violent efforts at utterance, efforts soon ending for the time in confirming the paralysis and bringing to his face an expression which was as a crucifixion to behold. That's what hypomony does, that kind of patient dirt. The next instant, quick as the flame from a discharged cannon at night, his right arm shot out and Claggart dropped to the deck. And Peter drew his sword and cut the ear off of the high priest's servant. The difference being, that the high priest servant survived. And Jesus said, put the sword back. If you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. And Claggart is dead. And Billy has been scandalized. He has reciprocated. And he has provided those who would mythologize the later events of this story. He has provided them with a rationalization for their mythos. As for Claggart, they raised him up there for a moment and it was like handling a dead snake. It may be in his demonic aspect, if you think of Claggart as the personification of a kind of powers and principality, is that he's perfectly willing to die as long as he provokes the reciprocation, as long as he accomplishes his mission. I mean, there's no reference to that in the text. Mission accomplished. Okay, so Captain Veer says, faded boy, and buries his face in his hands. And then the text says, slowly he uncovered his face, and the effect was as if the moon emerging from eclipse should reappear with quite another aspect than that which had gone into hiding. The father in him, manifested towards Billy thus far in the scene, was replaced by the military disciplinarian from the old from the New Testament to the Old Testament, so to speak. 
in his official tone, he bade the foretopman retire to the, to the stateroom aft and there remain. So now, Captain Veer is taking on his, dropping that fatherly aspect and becoming the official. He calls a drumhead court. And the text says, as to the, he's, he calls in the surgeon to confirm that, that uh, Claggard's dead. And then he tells the surgeon he's going to call a drumhead court. And the text says, as to the drumhead court, it struck the surgeon as impolitic if nothing more. The thing to do, he thought, was to place Billy Budd in confinement and in a way dictated by usage and postpone further action in so extraordinary a case to such time as they should rejoin the squadron and then refer it to the Admiral. He recalled the unwanted agitation of Captain Veer and his excited exclamations, so at variance with his normal manner. Was he unhinged? The surgeon communicated what had happened to the lieutenants and captains of the captain of the marines. Like him, too, they seemed to think that such a matter should be referred to the admiral. So Melville has said, uh, the ordinary thinking on this would be that you would wait and refer it to the admiral, which is in, uh, designed to get us to ask the question, why not? And then he's going to answer it. Whether Captain Veer, as the surgeon professionally and privately surmised, was really the sudden victim of any degree of aberration, everyone must determine for himself by such light as this narrative may afford. Our, our appraisal of Captain Veer's behavior will measure where we stand vis-a-vis -vis this whole problem. The text goes on. That the unhappy event which has been narrated could not have happened at a worse juncture was but too true. It was close on the heel of the suppressed insurrections and after time very critical to Navy authority, demanding from every English sea commander two qualities not readily inerfusible, prudence and rigor. Moreover, there was something crucial in the case. In the jugglery of circumstances preceding and attending the event on board the Polypotent, and in light of that martial code whereby it was formally to be judged, innocence and guilt personified in Claggart and Bud had, in effect, changed places. In a legal view, the apparent victim of the tragedy was he who had sought to victimize a man blameless. And the indisputable deed of the latter, navally regarded, constituted the most heinous of military crime. Yet more. The essential right and wrong involved in the matter, the clearer that might be, so much the worse for the responsibility of a loyal sea commander. Inasmuch as he was not authorized to determine the matter on that primitive basis. It's almost without doubt that Melville's using the word primitive here ironically. Uh, the primitive he's talking about is the primitive assessment of the situation would be that Billy is innocent and Claggard's guilty. But he's not operating on primitive assessments. He's operating on highly advanced uh, military code, which must therefore be the opposite of primitive, must be sophisticated, rational, etc., etc., and by that code, Billy is guilty and Claggart is innocent. Uh, but there's a biting irony in the use of that word primitive here. 
The case indeed was such that fain would the Bolivitan's captain have deferred taking any action whatever respecting it further than to keep the foretopman a close prisoner till the ship rejoined the squadron and then submitting the, mas the, the matter to the judgment of his admiral. However, the feeling that unless quick action was taken on it, the deed of the foretopman so soon as it should be known on the gun decks would tend to awaken any slumbering embers of the Nor mutiny among the crew, a sense of the urgency of the case overruled in Captain Veer every other consideration. So there you have it. It's at a critical moment, and you can't wait. Something has to happen. And so he calls a drumhead court. Well, I want to end on that. But just to dilate a second on the term, the beautiful term, the drumhead court. It comes from really a army battle on land where the where there's the the drum is used to as a communication device, but it but it conjures up in the mind a very primitive kind of setting, does it not? Very primitive ritual. That is to say, they gather around the big kettle drum head, you see, and they have to make a quick decision. The existence now of a drumhead court is the symbolic confirmation of the fact that the sacrificial cult has commandeered a, an apparently respectable cultural and legal system and converted it to its primitive purposes. They're now convening a drumhead court.